Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and with me is a man that wants to remind everyone about Star Wars Day and give them a little bit of trivia that all the scenes in Star Wars were filmed on Earth. Whoa, whoa. It's Dale. You're shitting me. I kid you not. <laughs> it's crazy how they can film that stuff on Earth. Yeah, I know, man. I don't even get it. Yeah, no, it's just it's like supposed it's, to be tattooing. Yeah. Or whatever it's called. Tattooing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Death, that's what I call it since death 1978. <laughs> yeah, the Death Star. Mm, I love yeah. it. Be loving some Star Wars, man. That's good stuff. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I love it. What's going on? What's going on with you? Oh, same old. Same old, same old. Yeah, working working to get to the fun stuff, man. Yeah, this is our fun stuff. It is. This is our fun day. We really enjoy it. Not Sunday, but fun day. Ooh, Sunday, fun day. So this is yeah. our whatever. It, <laughs> not the bangles. It's my fun day. Boy, this is going in the trash yeah. quick. <laughs> It'll be all right. Guess what? <laughs> you got some good shout outs for us yeah man we do all right you gotta, to, you gotta change gears and make this fun as soon as they quit clapping over there we got some five star five star <laughs> five star five star five star apple podcast reviews first up we got uh beans 0508 and they say faithful listener exclamation point Ooh. just so you know that means excitement <laughs> i've been listening to these guys for about two years now i love the southern draw and the banter between donnie and dale this is a wonderful, mellow podcast to listen to. I recently stopped listening to several of the, quote, top-rated podcasts due to the horrible frequency of their use of the F word. Hmm. So don't say French fries or something. Anyway, highly, re- highly recommend these guys who keep it classy. And then uh, Carrie. Well, very yeah, She cool. signed her whole name, and I don't know if she would keep her whole name. I mean, whatever. I guess well. it don't matter. But, but uh, yeah, we really appreciate that. And uh, we do the same thing, actually. There's a lot that I listen to that I just don't really care to hear that myself. Yeah, I mean, and I ain't saying you won't get one here, and you might get one today, <laughs> but there's not just there to be there. We don't use them for decoration. That's for no, sure. No, if one comes out, it, it's not intentional. <laughs> no, and we don't do it for ratings or anything like that either. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and that's something that we didn't really set out to do. It's just something that we talked about before because it's like you know we don't ever do it really. But it's like when I listen to a podcast, I don't want to hear that ever every other word either. No, I don't hear it. And it's not like I don't say it or nothing either. I mean, so I'm I'm guilty as charged. But anyway, I ain't, I ain't bashing nobody else, but we do us, and that's what we do. And we appreciate you liking us for us. Amen. How about that? Okay, I couldn't say it better myself. <laughs> All right, then. And I guess I'll get one more. I'm going to give it up for Debbie Crumb. Five star, five star. Well, I guess I could have gave her a last name. <laughs> what the hell? I'm all the hell. Anyway. Episode 159 says, just finished listening to episode 159 with Seton Tucker, Impact of Influence. Coincidentally, I just discovered her uh, this past Friday and started benching her podcast. I listened to another podcast during the activities leading to and during the trial. It's refreshing to hear another t- another's take on it. Good show, guys. Now I'm waiting for next Monday. And we appreciate you waiting for next Monday. I know you've been a long-time listener because your name is very, very familiar. Yeah, we see her, uh, Debbie's name on our Facebook, commenting and liking and sharing. And, and welcoming, folks. Yes, yes, she does. She's, yeah. she's like an honorary crack house member. Yeah. Well, yeah, we all are, aren't we? Yeah, we all are. <laughs> yeah, we're all crazy in this house. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And if anybody else wants to be like these fine folks and go to Apple Podcast. Click that five-star button and write something in the box. We will give you a big old shout-out. That's right. We sure will. Or you can go on Spotify like our boy Larry did today. Jump up there to give us a five-star review on Spotify. We appreciate that. Mm -hmm. They don't give you no choice to write anything in, but they definitely let you click a star button. They will. And if any other podcast platforms allow it, click that button on there. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Whatever it takes. On all platforms. Yes. And default. (laughs) All right, then. What we got going on today? We've been chit-chatting long, unless you want to push the start or stuff. No. 
We're going to get right into it. Okay. Buy people, a shirt. People know our shirts. <laughs> they know where they're at. They're on the store page. <laughs> well, we're going to get right into this one, Dale. All right, Dan. Because um, just a little bit of disclaimer. Yeah, something uh, we don't usually do. No, but uh, one of our five-star that we mentioned today about the F-bomb being dropped, um, this is not us saying it. This is coming from the story we're telling that is about the guy we're talking about. Oh, yeah. You know, some of the stuff he did okay. and some of the reporting. Yes. So it's not us. It's just telling the story. It's in context, man. Yeah, it is in context, and it's not for dramatic purposes. It is for uh, because of the story. Yeah, you're definitely going to get some. So if you have younger ears, they do not listen. need to listen to this episode. Right. It is, uh, it is rough. Yeah, you know, we're usually pretty transparent and we are what we are and don't usually hold back but this one's pretty damn rough so go ahead and give you that up front yeah so small ears don't need to hear this that's right you guys skip it and you know who you are yep. <laughs> but today dale we are talking about robert andrew Bradella, mm-hmm. also known as the kansas city butcher and he had another nickname the collector the collector yeah we're going describe and talk about how he got like this dramatic womp, womp, womp. yeah we're gonna talk about how he got these names yeah okay just a little bit of background on robert berdella he was born on january the 31st in 1949 in cuyahoga falls ohio hmm. he was the oldest of two sons born to robert andrew berdella senior who worked for the ford motor company yep and his mother was mary louise her maiden name was Huffman Berdella. Berdella. But Berdella's father, he was a pretty devout Roman Catholic. Oh, yeah, that's hard. Hardcore. Yeah, and uh, of Italian descent. Yep. And their family, Dale, they regularly attended Mass. Always. And both of their sons attended religious education courses. Mm-hmm. So they had these boys of theirs in church. Yeah. Very, constantly. Very religious. Yes. But like I said, Robert Bedella had a younger brother. His name was Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. He was he, he was born seven years later. Though. Yes. And as a kid, Robert, he was described as being intelligent, you know, doing well in school and stuff, but described as a loner. He didn't have many friends. He rarely played outside and just sort of stuck to himself. Well, and, you know, he was a... It's severe nearsightedness, so he wore thick glasses since he was five years old, and so he got bullied a lot, and he was a little bit overweight as a kid. So he was bullied a good bit. And he had a speech impediment, too. Yeah, so he didn't really have any friends at school, nobody to talk to, this kind of thing. And then his dad, no, was pretty strict at home, so he was always follow the rules and always go to mass and everything, anything that was not done correctly, you got the belt. So he kind of tried to stay up his dad's way, too. So anyway, so he's pretty much lonely as he could be. And you can imagine what's going to happen here. He's going to get bullied. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, he's never in charge of nothing. No. He's always the one getting getting hammered. And even as a young kid, he was diagnosed with high blood pressure. Which, which is he, weird. He took several medications for that. Right. Yeah. But it was described him being very unathletic. Right. Whereas his younger brother Daniel was just the opposite. Well, you know, he's really, young. you know, said to it, you know, he was how lonely or whatever he was and didn't have any friends. And when his little brother was born, he just thought for sure he'd have a built-in best friend. But that wasn't the case because his dad always kind of put them against each other to go kind of head-to-head thing. So mm-hmm. it ended up being, and then he was turns out really athletic, like I said. So he's not even going to be his buddy either. They were just complete opposites. Right. Yeah. But Berdella's father physically and emotionally abused both the boys, mm. and like Dale said, beat them with the belt yep. when they got out of line. Keep you straight, buddy. 
But Robert, he performed well in school and through uh, yeah, and, really smart. And his teachers often found him difficult to teach, in part due to his, you know, being aloof and being the recipient of bullies by other students. Man, you know, I guess, I guess being bullied, he just stayed withdrawn. He stayed, with, you know, and he never got any uh, social skills. So he, he know, probably didn't. Right, yeah. So he didn't really know how to interact with other people because he's always stayed by himself because he's just getting tired of picked on. Yeah. But when Robert reached puberty, he discovered that he was homosexual. Hmm. And he initially kept this very closely guarded secret. Well, you know he can't tell his parents. Well, gosh, no. That wouldn't work out. Mm -mm. And he didn't become open about his sexuality for several, several years later. Yeah. And But it was described that in his early teens, he briefly had a girlfriend. Hmm. It was reported. But now by his mid-teens, Robert had begun to display a degree of a little bit of self-confidence. He started becoming rude and condescending hmm. to other people, particularly women. And he learned about cooking and the art of uh, developing showmanship. Hmm. You know, I guess he used to get a little bit of confidence. I don't know. I guess. Yeah. And on Christmas Day, 1965, the family drove to Canton, Ohio to visit some relatives. And it was that evening, Robert's dad suffered a heart attack mm. when he was 39 years old. 39. And two days later, uh, Robert returned to Cuyahoga Falls by himself. And when he arrived home, his family told him his father had died. Yeah, sad. Very. Yeah. But Robert sought solace in his Catholicism. Yeah. You know, he was baptized in the Catholic Church and you know he was using his faith to I guess get through with what he was doing and, and dealing with yes and it was he later read extensively extensively about many other faiths but he's uh, trying to find something to give him some relief to yeah this, but I, and, I, to and I get it too man right but eventually became cynical about all religions yeah he just like man no this is for me he just departed from the religion altogether right yeah now, in 1965, Robert, he saw a movie, and it was the film adaptation of the John Fowles novel, The Collector. The Collector. And the plot on this movie revolves around a disturbed man who stalks and then abducts a young woman who he finds very attractive. Yeah, he thinks he's going to get her, and she's going to fall in love with him if he keeps her long enough. Yeah. Or something. And he was holding her captive in his windowless stone basement. And viewing her as little more than just an attractive specimen. And after several weeks, the woman dies of a uh, contracted illness despite, you know, her captor's efforts to keep her alive. And Robert later stated this movie had formed a lasting impression on him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Shortly after the death of Robert's father, his mother remarried. Yeah. It wasn't long it was really, at all. Really quick. Yes. Yeah, and he didn't like that at all. No, he had a lot of resentment. For yeah. his mom. Yeah, he was even saying, you know, he even thought, like, I mean, damn, dad's body's not even cold yet. And he even viewed it as a form of betrayal against his father. Right. And as a result of this, he became more withdrawn and further immersed himself in, you know, like his solitary activities, such as painting, collecting coins and stamps, and just writing to foreign pen pals, something he started doing. Right. But Robert would later claim that his hobby of writing to pen pals in countries such as vietnam and burma and these pen pals would they would send him stamps for his collection and photographs of mythical and historical icons hmm. so that was 
pretty cool, I guess, to get into him. So that's how he's getting into this art stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Antiques and this kind of thing. So from approximately 1965, he would begin collecting these artifacts, and this later this practice would later inspire him to open up a antiques business. That's right. Yeah. So he had a little bit of aspirations to start his own business. He's getting there. Yeah. Now, in the summer of 1967, Robert graduated from Cuyahoga Falls High School. And in his studies there, he earned such excellent grades uh, and displayed such potential that in 1966, one of his teachers placed him in an independent study program. And shortly after graduation, Robert relocated to Kansas City. And there he enrolled in the Kansas City Art Institute. Yeah, I think he's getting away from his mama. Yeah, and he was wanting to become a college professor. And in the first year at Kansas City Art Institute, he he was considered an attentive and talented student. Yeah, his teachers loved him. Yeah. And by his second year, Robert became vocally anti-authoritarian. And he also became acquainted with a clique of students who supplied him with some drugs. There you go which he then sold to other students to make a profit. Businessman. Yeah. And in addition, he began regularly abusing alcohol, and he also engaged in acts of animal torture. And in Dale, on at least two occasions during one of these instances, he decapitated a duck. I'd have beat his ass. <laughs> yeah. He decapitated a duck in the presence of some of his other students he was around, his peers. Yeah, and he also killed a chicken. Yeah. It was the same thing, but he was saying he was doing it in, in art. It was some kind of art, but what the heck? It was just an expression of art. Yeah, that's what and, he was saying. Yeah. What the hell? And, the, <laughs> and there was a second time he experimented with some sedatives and tranquilizers on a dog. Right. Just for the, he was saying that it was for the purpose of art, which, yeah, that's stupid. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And by the time uh, Robert was 19, he was arrested for attempting to sell methamphetamines to an undercover officer. Not good. No. Not good. And he was released after posting a $3,000 bond. This was, you know, back then, but in today's money, That'd that would be $25,000, man. Yeah, today. Woo. And would later plead guilty to the offense and was handed a five-year suspended sentence. Right. And one month after his first arrest, Robert and two other students were arrested for possession of marijuana and LSD in Johnston County. Hmm. He don't learn, is he? No. <laughs> and Robert, he he couldn't post bond. And he spent five days in jail, although the charges against him and one of the other students would be dropped due to lack of evidence. So he was... That don't make sense to me, but I, I mean, it's, I've read that everywhere, and it always says the same thing. But if they caught him for possession, of, then how were they going to... Unless one of the other kids had it on them or something. Yeah. That's the only thing I'd think of. Yeah, but he got out of it. Right. Either way, he's out of it. Yep. Now, in 1969, Robert voluntarily withdrew from the Kansas City Art Institute after receiving some harsh criticism from the college admins for killing and cooking a duck, like we said, for the sake, <laughs> sake of art. Right. And he chose to remain there in Kansas City. And in September of that year, he moved into an address within the Hyde Park District. This was at 4315 Charlotte Street. Right. And by this time, Robert had been openly gay for several years, Dale. Well, once he got away from, you know, his parents and the, the religion over his head, you know, and especially in the 60s. Yeah. He went out there and he's going into college and now he's just... He's being, free. He's free, yeah. Yeah. But Robert began spending much of his free time with male prostitutes, 
drug addicts, uh, some petty criminals, and runaways. Mm. And he would typically befriend these type of people and then try to help them free themselves from the drug addictions or criminal lifestyles. Yeah, he was trying to help some folks out. It seemed like he was. Yeah, you know, it's, at this point, his heart was in the right place anyway. And he was very adamant that throughout much of the 1970s, he had no physical contact whatsoever with any of them. Right. Yeah. But to several of Robert's neighbors, they stated he gradually almost felt like a foster parent to many of these younger people. Mm. And by the early 1980s, many of his older acquaintances had ceased from any form of social contact with him, with uh, Robert increasingly relying on these young men as a source of companionship and friendship. Now, he would later claim to have become increasingly frustrated with many of these individuals that were ignorant of his efforts to help steer them away from the self-destructive behavior they were they were having. Yeah. And despite these later claims to investigators, Robert would often engage in sexual relations with the men he befriended. Yeah. And would establish a degree of control over them. Well, I think a lot of them, you know, he would go and he would, like, give them a place to live and this and take care of them, but he expected a, a little bit in return. He, yeah, he wanted to be, yeah. 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 Basically, you know, because he didn't, you know, he didn't have no love interest, so he's just having to get what he could get, I yeah. guess, if that's a way to put it. Yeah, and they would let him stay rent-free in his house and just, you know, maybe do odd jobs around the place there just to have somewhere to stay. And, right. Yeah. And he was getting some sex off of him, too. Yeah, trading out. Yeah. But to his neighbors, Robert was considered to be just flamboyant yet helpful and civic-minded. And beginning in the late 70s, uh, Robert worked with the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association Watch. Yeah, he's on Neighborhood Watch. Yeah. And he became, the, he became their chairman in the early 1980s, encouraging neighborhood watch patrols. Mm-hmm. And he remained active with the association until the mid-1980s. He even was volunteering, you know, at fundraising events and stuff like that. Yeah. And even for a local public television station until mm-hmm. the mid-1980s. So. Big, big deal. Yeah. For him. But shortly after Robert moved to his Charlotte Street address... He began working as a short order cook in various restaurants around the Kansas City area. And this was in part to help pay lawyers' fees and fines accrued from his previous drug arrest. Yeah, because he got like a five year suspended sentence for that methamphetamine sale to that undercover cop. Yeah. And then right after that, you know, he got arrested again. And, but, and then he spent his uh, savings to buy this house where he moved into. He figured he'd stay there until he go to jail, but we'll see how that works out. Mm hmm. Now, as a means of obtaining additional income, he also sold items of art and antiques he had acquired and collected from his contacts he established around the world, like Asia, Africa, and South America. Yeah, I think he he would go to local trade lots and just rent out a spot and sell stuff, and plus out of his I guess out of his house and home, but he did it on the, at the trade lot as well. Yeah. But Robert's career and the little side business he had eventually flourished, and by the ni- mid nineteen seventies. He began working as a senior cook at several renowned Kansas City restaurants, also joining a local chef's association and helping establish a training program for uh, up-and-coming chefs in the local community college. You know, and it's crazy. Everything that he's go to do, that he go to do, everything that he went to do, he did really well at it for a while. So I think the guy's pretty smart. As far as, you know, getting in school and doing this, and he went, you know, he went to art school, and all of a sudden now he, he was doing so well that he had his eyes on being an art professor, and now this, he goes into, you know, the neighborhood and goes there, and next thing you know, he's running all the stuff. And then, uh, then when he goes to be a chef, 
first thing you know, now he's getting this thing up and running to help other people who want to be chefs, setting up all this stuff. And it's pretty neat, you know, really, as far as everything doing up until this point. Yeah. It was at one point he was working at one of these restaurants, and he was raped by one of the workers there. That's right. Yeah. Uh, there's not much information on it, and he didn't report about it till later. But uh, well, he couldn't. Well, this happened back when he was still around his parents, I think. Okay. It was like his first job or whatever. It was uh, in 1965. Okay. He was raped by a man, when, you know, in a restaurant. So the guy took him in the back room while nobody was there because that was another thing that got him because he couldn't tell his parents. So he had to just keep it in. He, who could he tell? You know. Exactly. Right. And I think that was like his really his first sexual experience and was being in the back room with another dude and getting raped yeah getting raped at a, in a restaurant so i think after that's when he quit with the church and all that stuff and so but fast forward to back where we are so yeah i didn't want to leave that out just wanted to throw that in because it was that was important it's to, important yeah to his uh being and what we're talking about with what's going on with robert exactly. but by 1981 he had established several uh contractual agreements with both national and international contacts for his antiques business mm-hmm. and he viewed this business as his full-time job and later stopped working as a chef yeah yeah so in 1982 he opened up his own booth at the westport flea market and it was called bob's bizarre bizarre wow that's, that's really a good name bbb yeah triple b but he primarily sold and traded primitive art jewelry and antiques and just oddities is what he would have and occasionally making a generous monthly profit, the income he typically generated through this business was often not sufficient to maintain his daily expenses and to make ends meet. Right. So as a result, Robert would occasionally steal or scavenge for items to sell at his booth or take people back to his home as a means of gaining additional income. I guess renters stay at his house. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> now, at his work... Bob became acquainted with a fellow merchant there. I guess he had a booth there next to to his. And his name was Paul Howell. Right. And he operated that booth right beside of his. Yeah. And soon Robert became acquainted with Paul's younger son, Jerry. Right. I think he was about 14 when they met. Yeah. Initially, Jerry Howell and his friends, they sort of taunted Robert over his homosexuality. Yeah. And according to Robert... Jerry Howe later confided in him that his friends occasionally earned money as male prostitutes. Yeah. So, yeah, they were making fun of him, but, yeah, they were they were doing stuff. Right. I don't think he was 14 at that time. When he first met him, he was 14. I don't yeah. know when he started his side business. Yeah. By the early 1980s, Paul Howe, they had the business next to Robert's there in the, the booth there. Right. He relocated his business to a store close to the intersection of 39th and Main Street. And his family also moved into an apartment above the shop. Right. And Robert remained a casual friend of the family, also offering his assistance if Jerry encountered any minor scrapes by the law. And by the summer of 1984, Jerry Howe was 19 years old. Okay, here we yeah. go. Now we're going to move into getting into some Robert Berdella's victims, Dale. Yeah. So things are fixing to heat up. Yeah. Now, Robert Berdella is believed to have killed his, his first victim on July the 5th of 1984. Right. And his first known victim was this 19-year-old Jerry Howell. Yes. That his dad, you know, owned the booth, rented the booth there beside of him. But Robert had promised... Yeah, he didn't know, remember, he had known his kid since he was yeah. 14. So he knew him. But Robert had promised to drive Jerry to a, 
attend a dance contest in Miriam. Mm-hmm. And according to Robert, he piled Jerry with alcohol, diazepam, and some other drugs yeah. in his car at his house and until Jerry became unconscious. Yep. And then he injected him with a heavy tranquilizer before binding him to his bed. Yep. Yeah. Now, Jerry Howell was restrained to Robert's bed for approximately 28 hours. Yeah, he was bound and gagged him to the bed and sodomized repeatedly. Yes. And throughout this period of captivity, Robert repeatedly drugged him, man. Yeah, he just kept kept him drugged. That way he couldn't fight back. Yeah. And just raped him and violated him with just foreign objects. Yeah, over and over. And repeatedly ignoring Jerry's intermittent questioning as to why he was being treated like this. Every time he come to, yeah. Yeah. And according to Robert Berdella, Jerry either asphyxiated on his own vomit or a combination of the gag and the medicines were too strong for him to catch his breath. Right. And then the whole time this is going on, he's taking numerous photos with his Polaroid camera and keeping a detailed log of everything he's doing. Yeah. He's taking a lot of Polaroids. Yeah. And like Dale said, writing everything down he's doing. Yep. Which we're going to talk a little bit about. Yeah, we'll later. get into that a little more detail, yeah. Now, Robert Berdella would later state that he briefly attempted to perform CPR on Jerry Howe after he had died before dragging his body to the basement. Yeah. I don't, I don't think he meant to kill him right off the bat. No, probably not. It was, uh, I think it's from asphyxiation, you know. Mm-hmm. From either, like you said, either the either a combination of all the drugs and the asphyxiation, or you know, or just a vomit or whatever. Yep. But when he got him to the basement, he suspended Jerry's body above a large cooking pot and made several incisions in his body right around his inner elbows and jugular vein before leaving his body suspended in that position. Yep. And he left him overnight to allow the blood to drain from his body. Right. Now, the following day, he dismembered Jerry Howe's body using a chainsaw and boning knives before wrapping all the sections of his body in newspaper and trash bags. Yeah, and then put those trash bags inside of dog food bags, and then those dog food bags were placed into a larger trash bag. Yeah, and just put them out to the curb. <laughs> yeah, get that. He just takes this and puts it out on the curb, just like it's regular trash. And let the garbage crew pick it up. Sits there and looks out the window to make sure nobody messes with the bags and lets the garbage guys pick it up and take it off. Yep. But later on, questioned by officers investigating Hal's disappearance, Robert claimed to have uh, driven Jerry to the Miriam to Miriam as promised into that dance. Right. His dad raised hell and he's like nobody's looking for my son yeah after they figured out and he went to the cops and go look you got to go talk to to uh, robert that you got to go talk to him and they didn't see anything to it but they did bring him in for question like he said and uh you know robert was kind of freaking out like what did he do and he said but really the cops are only doing it just to satisfy his dad and they didn't even really ask him a lot of questions just let him go i mean they did a you know basic interview but they didn't think he had nothing to do with it so it, not like they really had him pinned down or nothing that's right was, so this is like how many of we these cases have we done where right at the first one a killer or something's getting ready to go at it, he gets caught and they let him go. I mean, it's it many times, a lot of times. Well, they don't have anything on them, right? Yeah, or, or they do. They do that. They, they just don't know it. Exactly. Right. That's right. A lot of times, like you know, even people get like Dahmer even got caught with a, had a body in the, in the trunk, right? And they just mm-hmm. let him go. It was in the back seat. And they just let him go. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. But he said that uh, he'd parted ways with Jerry there at the. Uh, you know, to dance. Took him to the dance. Yep. yep. 
And as the case with all Berdella's murders, he kept a detailed log, like we said, in which he documented, documented each of his sexual acts and physical torture. Yeah, he had little code code acronyms, I guess. Yeah. And like the subsequent victims he would hold captive, uh, Jerry Howe had repeatedly pleaded for his ongoing abuse and torture to stop. And throughout the period of his capture, Berdella would either ignore these pleas or just taunt him and threaten him. Right. Well, you know, the thing is, he's now he's the one in charge, and he's really getting off on this power trip. Yeah. I don't really think it's so, so much as, I mean, I know the sexual thing is a part of it for sure, but the thing that's getting him off is this power trip. Now, he finally is in charge, you know, of, of everything that's going on, and, he's, you know, it really hadn't been his whole life. This is his big, big fantasy right here. Crazy. But now on April the 10th of 1985, a former renter of uh, Robert's, Robert Berdella. Yeah, he rented a room from him. Yeah, this guy, his name was Robert Sheldon. Mm-hmm. And he arrived on Berdella's doorstep asking him if he could stay at his house for a you know, short period of time. And he's like, sure you can. Yeah, but according to uh, Berdella, Sheldon was responsible in paying rent. And he considered him an inconvenience and although he was not particularly attracted to him he chose to drug and hold him captive yep on april the 12th yeah he said he's going to keep him yeah and when he returned home from work to find Sheldon intoxicated in his house Berdella was adamant that he had no firm malice towards Sheldon, but saw him as someone who could he could express some sort of anger and frustration that he had toward other people on that's what he was just mm-hmm. yeah taking it out on him basically yeah and Sheldon was drugged with sedatives and held captive in the second floor bedroom for three days. Mm. I mean, enduring and, and forms of torture such as swabbing drain cleaner in his left eye. Yeah, he thought that, well, I guess it's, this is one of those deals where they want a sex slave kind of thing going on. And you know how often that, that pops up doing these kind of stories. But this is the one thing where he goes, well, maybe if he's blind, he can't get away or he can't, he won't leave. So he gets the idea to put Drano either on a cotton swab or on a, a Q-tip, soaked it in, and then stuck it in his eye. Yeah. Ouch. And he would insert needles under his fingertips. Yeah, like a bamboo shoot. That's where he got the idea from, from the Vietnam. God, I'm not. And he would also, uh, he was binding his wrist with piano wire with the intention of permanently damaging the, damaging the nerves in his hand. Right. Well, if he don't, can't use his hands, then he can't fight back. Exactly. Right. And he also filled his ears with caulk yeah like a caulking gun like yeah you just do your windows and stuff he went and filled the guy's ears with that saying that way he couldn't hear if i was coming or going or what was going on so he, could, he tries everything he's doing is trying to keep him from fighting back and and to uh keep him from escaping, keep him subdued uh, escaping yeah exactly yeah but three days after Berdella had begun holding sheldon captive this was on april the 15th there was a workman came to perform some scheduled work on the roof of Berdella's home yeah, something he'd had planned for a while, and then the guy just showed up out of the blue. Yeah, and he panicked, but oh. he was out there talking to the worker out there in the yard, making sure that, I guess, he hadn't seen anything or heard anything. Right. Yeah, but this when he went back into the house, and he chose to fatally suffocate Sheldon. This when he placed a sack over his head, which he tightened with a piece of rope, and he suffocated him. Yeah. And he later uh, dissected Sheldon's body in the third floor bathroom, displayed him in the tub and drained his uh, body and 
Well, you know, he didn't want to kill him yet because that was his thing. He wanted to keep him alive, and he just freaked out when this guy showed up, and he didn't know what to do. He's like, well, do I take a chance on, you know, this guy not seeing him anything or hearing anything, or do I just kill him and take care of the problem altogether, and he won't know anything about it. So that's why he chose to go in there and put the plastic bag over his head and tied a rope around it and left. Mm-hmm. And then he came back, and, you know, he was dead. But, and then he went outside and talked to the guy again, and the guy hung around for a while. He's like, never knowing a thing. Yeah. Crazy. All good. And it just act like everything's fine. Exactly. Yeah, he, play, he placed the body in, a, in the bathtub and made all the incisions, allowed the blood to drain out. Then he dismembered and disposed of the body as he had done before with, with Hal, you know. Except, except this time, he decided he needed to keep the head. He's going to keep the skull. So he kept the, the decapitated head and took it out and buried it in his backyard. Yeah. So he kept Sheldon's head. Wow. Yeah, so this he didn't keep anything from the first one, but this time he decided he needed, a, I guess, something. Yeah. Right. So then after this is when he meets Mark Wallace. Yeah. So I guess with, the, with this toy gone, he's got to find a new toy. Yeah. So the following June, Berdella found Mark Wallace. Right. Who he vaguely knew via Wallace having previously helped him with some yard work. Right, yeah, he used to come around and do some yard work and this kind of thing, work yeah. for him. He had uh, hired him to come work for him and said that uh, he kind of liked to sit in the house and watch him work. But he found Mark Wallace in his tool shed. Yeah, it was a big storm one night. Mm-hmm. And the dogs, his dogs, and uh, of course, uh, Bob had, or Robert had uh, several big dogs. And his dogs were just raising all kind of cane. So uh, he went outside to see what was going on. And inside of his tool shed, he was uh, seeking shelter from the storm. So he just told uh, Wallace, "Won't you come on inside and we'll get you warmed up and mm-hmm. have him take care of you." Yeah. So they invite him inside and uh, said Wallace was just sort of tense yeah. and seemed depressed. Well, he was repressed about his his uh, his money situation, and then he had a lot of anxiety and everything. He was just he was stressed out to the max, and I don't know he had, he must have had some other stuff going on too with bouts and depression, this kind of stuff. And that's when. Uh, he volunteered to inject him with some. Uh, he, yeah, he injected him with some uh, chlorprozamine. Right. Yeah. He told him he would give him something to help him calm down and relax. And he's like, sure, that's exactly what I needed. So he went ahead and shot him up. So he so, probably is a little bit stronger than what he's used to. Then. Yeah. About 30 minutes later, uh, Robert Berdella decided to keep him captive. Yes. Yeah. Wallace was carried to the second floor bedroom where he endured a day of captivity and torture, including. The, um, some alligator clips. Yep, on his nipples. Attached to his nipples. And so he could break out the damn shock box. Yeah, he got out a little shock box. A and, transformer he bought. Yeah, and he was providing some electrical shock to his body. Yep. Starting his torture thing. And this would just, uh, this shock would just regress him into a state of unconsciousness. Oh, yeah. And according to Robert Berdella, one hour after his experimenting with the hypodermic needles by inserting him into various muscles into his back yeah it's kind of like an acupuncture thing except for he's looking to places that cause pain yeah yeah so he's just sticking needles on his back yeah and mark wallace died through the common the combination of the drugs the gag and the lack of oxygen mm-hmm. and he noted his victim's time of death as being seven o'clock p.m. on june the 23rd yeah pretty bad so after a whole day of torturing and sodomized he just died yeah and i'm sure this pissed him off because he didn't have him for a day yeah i can't imagine like the electric shock man mm. yeah and it gets worse but yeah Robert, he's just learning what he's doing right now robert burdell is just ramping up more and more yeah no, now he's getting the power thing trips coming up you know and now he just wants to bring the pain so like we told you this is not for 
young years. No. It's not gotten nowhere near where it's before we go no. in. Now, on September the 26th of 1985, Berdella answered a phone call from an acquaintance named James Ferris, who asked to stay at uh, his house for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Now, Berdella accepted with some specific intentions of kidnapping Ferris. Yeah, he wanted him to come meet him for a drink at this gay bar. Yeah. So he's like, hmm, sure, I'll come on down and hang out. And then that's when the guy asked him if he could come and hang out stay at his house for a while. Robert claimed that the Ferris was the actual first victim upon, you know, that he intentionally inflicted torture. Okay. The other ones, he were kind of, I think he was experimenting, getting off on seeing what, what did what. But this guy here, he was, he's got a, you know, he's got it down a little bit. And he knows what he's doing, and he's got his tools. So this dude here was going to pay. Yeah. But Berdella brought uh, James Ferris home with him and drugged him. Yes. And he uh, crushed some tranquilizers that he concealed in a meal. Yep. Then tied him to the bed before torturing almost constantly for about 27 hours. And the torture included repeated administering of a 7,700-volt electric shocks to the shoulder and his testicles. His testicles. For up to five minutes each. Yeah, from I think he said in an interview it was always from like two to five minutes. Wow, and in each instance, the acupuncture, you know, from the hypodermic needles to the neck and genitals, Ferris gradually became delirious. I guess so. But Robert Berdella continued his physical and sexual assaults until he noted in his log that Ferris was unable to sit up for more than fifteen seconds. Yeah, very delayed breathing. Yeah. Mm. But Robert Berdella noted that Ferris died with a slang term that he used in his... Yeah, he was 86. Yeah, that's what he, the term he used. Well, you know, you know, people say it a lot. He does 86 it or whatever. Probably not so much now, but he used to, like, throw it in the trash. as you know, 86 at. Stop it or whatever. Right, yeah. He needs to throw it out. Yeah, 86, yeah. yeah. Now, you also got to know that um, the whole time he's just doing this stuff with the... Shocking and all that stuff. He's also doing serious sexual stuff to these people. Yes. If you go back and look, which we hit on a little bit earlier, as far as his note taking, he would often use initials to be stuff, and it'd be like a a a BF or a FF or a CF and stuff like that. And then later would uh, say what they meant. It was like the BF would be a butt fuck, and a FF would be a finger fuck or a front fuck depending on which one or how he had it listed mm-hmm. and then cf would be like a carrot i mean he was even using carrots and cucumbers and his fist and all kind of thing to sodomize these people with yeah. so it wasn't just using his himself and he was using this in his his note taking that he was keeping everything he was doing meticulous to these... note taking yeah he would, if you can see the note taking it would be how much of every drug he had initialized what time it was and what was going on, what happened, and then everything that he'd done to him, it was all, I mean, wrote out. And still taking Polaroids of what he was doing. Yes. And these, a lot of these Polaroids are available online of these yeah. victims. If you want to see them. Yeah. Just just search it. Just You'll know. find it. <laughs> yeah. It's rough. Now, his next victim was a guy named Todd Stoops. He was a 23-year-old drug addict and an occasional prostitute who, alongside his wife, had twice lived briefly at Robert Berdella's house in 1984. Right. Now, after Todd Stoops and his wife moved out of the home the second time, Robert Berdella did not see him again until a chance encounter in Kansas City's Liberty Memorial Park. Right. Now, when they were staying there, they said that actually Stoops did do 
uh, Berdella some sexual favors, but he was always worried that his wife was going to find out. Yeah. You know, I think I don't think he minded doing it the way, it the way I read it, but he definitely didn't want to be caught doing it. And exactly. Then later when they moved out and then we to where we are now, yeah. Yeah. But he uh, had a chance encounter with Todd Stoops at the Kansas City Liberty Memorial Park. This was on June 17th of 1986. Mm-hmm. And this is when Berdella invited him to his house with an offer for lunch. Yeah, come on over. Uh, with an added, in, added incentive of some sex, as Stoop stated, stated that he needed about $13 to purchase some drugs, which that $13 then is about $35 today. Yeah. Now, Robert Berdella would later tell investigators that he had been extremely and physically attracted to Todd Stoops. Yep. And this victim was held captive for two weeks before he died. Yeah, awful. With him gradually increasing his captive's terror to make him, I guess, cooperative and uh, making him a sex slave. Yeah, he's trying to break his will. And Berdella used electrical shocks throughout uh, his body and even put it on his closed eyes. At this point, he's got two spatulas hooked up to instead of the alligator clips he started out with. He said he took two spatulas and hooked a lead to each spatula. Metal spatulas. Yeah, so basically it's like a... Shock paddles. Yeah, so he was putting them in, when, that's what he said on about the eye. He put it on his closed eyelid, so he's trying to shoot electricity through his eye. To blind him. Yeah. Golly. So he would put it, and that way he didn't have to take it off and re- reposition it. He could just take the paddles and put them where he wanted them, and that's what he did. He would put them on her back, put them where, put them on her genitals, put them on his eyes. Remembering it's like 7,700 watts or volts or whatever it was. Yeah. Mm. And uh, he would also, uh, Todd would do a lot of screaming and stuff during this time, and he found a way to silence his screaming. Yes. He had met a guy earlier on. I can't remember what the guy, which, which guy it was, but he, he had had something happen to him during childhood or something, and his voice was real gravelly, and he couldn't yell or couldn't scream if he wanted to just because it was. And, and this, uh, Bob remembered this. So that's when we're getting down to where you're talking about here as far as he started thinking about this when he started screaming. So that's when he went in. Uh, he got some drain cleaner and put it in a syringe. Yeah. And then drain over people. And then he uh, injected this drain cleaner into his larynx. Yeah. He's trying to shoot it right into his vocal cords. Yeah. Yeah. And he said he was careful to do it because he didn't want it to go all the way through and then go down his throat, but he wanted to stick it straight into his vocal cords to damage it. So therefore he couldn't yell. So it's just like the caulking of the ears and, the hand damage and everything else is basically yeah. just trying to keep them weak so they can't escape now he can't yell either that's right and they told him the more he do it the worse it's going to get now during the second week of capture god second week can you mm. imagine Mm-mm. uh this no because this dude he would get up in the morning he would drug them he would sodomize them over and over and then he would drug them more and he'd leave and go to work at his at his business like nothing's going on yeah and then he would come home and drug them up again and same thing all night long every day every day yeah but um, during the second week of capture, this one Stoops asked Robert Berdella for a soft drink and a sandwich, and Berdella refused. And yeah. this one uh, Stoops he burst he, into tears. He just started crying. Yeah. yeah, he's broke. He's done. You know, he's basically a child. You know what I mean? As far as his will. And on June the twenty seventh, uh, Berdella ruptures Stoops' anal wall with his fist, causing bleeding and discharge. Yeah. He and rammed his fist so far up in there, he ruptured him. Golly. So he's bleeding internally, yeah. And toward the end of Stoops' captivity, he tried to feed uh, him some ice cream and soup. Yeah. Although uh, Stoops wasn't able to keep anything down. No. 
and by the final day of his captivity, Stoop was so weak that Berdella later stated he'd been unable to breathe and even in a sitting position. Yeah. And on June 1st of 1986, Todd Stoops died, and a forensic pathologist later testified that the ruptured anal wall caused septic shock that proved fatal. Yep. Man. Now, in the spring of 1987, Robert Berdella became friendly with a 20-year-old named Larry Wayne Pearson. Now, this casual friendship began when Pearson entered his shop, his little antique shop, and explained to Berdella that, as a child, he had had an interest in both witchcraft and wizardry. And shortly thereafter, Pearson temporarily stayed at the Berdella home and, you know, was performing some chores around his house as a means of, you know, paying the rent. And according to Berdella, he did not intentionally intend to capture Pearson, but began performing a plan to do so on June the 23rd. Mm-hmm. This was two weeks after having bailed Pearson out of jail and in uh, prior weeks to his captivity, displaying little interest in finding a job. Right, that's what happened. See, Pearson had called him and wanted him to come bail him out, which he did. Yeah. So because, uh, you know, if, you, if I come do something for you, you're going to do something for me. So that's what he's thinking. So he went and bailed him out and said, well, you can just stay at my house for a couple of weeks. So he took him home, and for a couple of weeks he didn't do nothing. And I think mainly that's because – they would be a paper trail if he if he disappeared because now he's signed him out of prison. They know you the one to come picked him up. So if something happened right away, then they know where to go. Mm, that's right. So he gave it a couple of weeks before he done anything to this guy. Yeah. So on the afternoon of June the twenty third, Berdella and Pearson watched the movie Creep Show two together before eating some lunch. And as the two drove around Kansas, Pearson began jokingly referring to his practice of robbing gay men in Wichita, and this disclosure finalized Robert Berdella's decision to hold Pearson captive. Yeah. And that evening, Robert Berdella, he made sure that Pearson became intoxicated before injecting him with uh, chlorprosamine. Yeah, I think he challenged him to a shot contest, even though Berdella was not a heavy drinker. They drank, I think he said, about 15, 12 to 15 shots apiece. Yeah. And he moved him to the basement where he bound Pearson's hands above his head, tied him up to a brick column. Yeah, he had a, he hooked a chain to the rope. And then he injected his larynx yep. with some drain cleaner. Mm. Yeah. And then he brought out the shocker, old yeah. Sparky. Electrical transformer to the basement. Now, according to Robert Berdella, Pearson was by far the most cooperative of his six victims. And on the fifth day of captivity, repeated administration of electric shock by the you know with this transformer. He broke several bones with an iron rod to render him submissive. Yeah, it, it, breaking his hand bones. He'd yeah. take it and smash his hands with that iron rod. But uh, Robert Berdella, he's deduced that Pearson had earned his trust as to his continued cooperation in his sexual and physical abuse. Yeah, well, he told him if he, you know, the, the better you do, the more reward you get. You know? Exactly. So. so as a form of this reward, Pearson was moved to the second floor bedroom with uh, Robert Berdella informing Pearson that if he continued to cooperate, he would not continue to inflict as much pain on him as he'd done while he was you know, being held in the basement. Right. He didn't and, want to go back to the basement. Nope. And throughout the latter part of the, his six weeks of captivity, six, six weeks, weeks. Uh, Pearson trained himself to sleep without moving in order that he did not uh, antagonize Robert Berdella and thus inviting more torture and being returned to the basement. Man. Now, after six weeks of captivity, Pearson deeply bit into 
Burdell's penis. Right. Well, yeah. you know, he said, you know, he basically he had got to where he didn't even keep him restrained anymore because he just knew he was he was it. Yeah. You know, I'm keeping you, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, so then he was having to uh, or give him oral sex almost every day and then several times a day on some days. And he would just do whatever he asked him to do at this point. Yeah. And then he said one day that uh, Burdello was just kind of taking it for granted everything's going good and was looking at a magazine an international mail magazine that the, the swimsuits and the beefcake in there as he said and that's when the other guy bit his penis yes pretty bad yeah he bit it really bad yeah so and, he's like doing well <laughs> and that's when he picked up a stick and beat, beat the hell out of him. now when he uh bit his penis uh Berdella screamed he screamed and then he picked up a they say the tree limb but i think it was just a whatever it could have been he picked up a big a wooden stick and uh severely beat him with it yeah beat him over the head beat with him, it. beat him unconscious actually yeah and then he grabbed his stuff and went to the hospital yeah wrapped his penis up and went to the hospital yeah and he went in and they stitched him up but they told him he probably need to stay a couple of days but he told him that uh he had a dog at home that had a, a litter of pups he had to get home and get her in but he promised he would come back to the hospital for to get the rest of his treatment that's right so he did go home he let the dog in went up put a bag on Pearson's head and killed him. He uh, tied a bag on his head and tied it around his neck just like he'd done the other guy. And, and he went around, he went and fed the dogs, and he come back, and first he said he knew he was dead because he saw that the bag was bubbling at first, you know, going in and out. But when he came back the last time, it was almost sucked to his face that all the air had been sucked out of it. Wow. So he knew he was dead. Yeah. And then he went back to the hospital. He just left him there and went back to the hospital Yeah. to finish up his treatment. Dang. Now, when he came back from the hospital, he come in, and, of course, he had to dispose of the body like he did all the rest, you know, dismemberment. Mm-hmm. Not easy for me to say. He did dismembered him in the basement, and he decided that he was going to keep his head. So he yeah. put his head in the freezer out back, and then a couple of days later, he went out, and he actually dug up the other head yeah. that he had that had been there at this point about two years. Pulled it out and put this fresh head in its place and took the one from the backyard into the house, cleaned it up, and put it in his closet, which he called his uh, gallery area. Wow. So he had it on display now. Yeah. Yeah, it's Berdella. He's something else, man. I'm telling you. Yeah. Now, we're moving to March the 29th of 1988. This is about 1 a.m., and Robert Berdella, he abducted his last victim. This is a 22-year-old male prostitute named Christopher Bryson. Mm Mm-hmm who he lured to his house upon the promise of payment for sex. And at the house, Bryson was knocked unconscious with an iron bar. He did that to several of them. We're going to go upstairs and watch TV or whatever, and as soon as they thought up the steps, he would smash them in the back of the head. That's yep. how he got a lot of them right off the bat, and then before he drugged them. Yeah, and then bound him to the bed, where he was subjected to just similar methods of abuse and torture you know, endured by his previous victims. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff that he did to these people that we're leaving out, but, you know, how many times do you have to say it? Yeah, but although in Bryson's case, Berdella repeatedly swabbed his eyes with ammonia before exclaiming to him, the only things you need to think about are you and me and this house. Mm-hmm. And after several days, uh, Robert Berdella explained to Bryson he had begun to trust his captive. Yep. And that although he was willing to discuss aspects of his this abuse and torture he was receiving, there would be no negotiations pertaining to his sexual abuse. And Robert Berdella finished this discussion by uh, giving him a, a stern warning. He said he told him he said I've gotten this far with other people before, and they're dead now. 
because of mistakes they've made. Right. And he was showing him Polaroids all that he had taken. And stuff, yeah. yeah, he was showing him Polaroids and all of his other victims. Can you imagine? New. It's just, it's like somebody I was talking to today is talking about, man, all the crazy stuff that goes on you see in movies and stuff. And I said, yeah, and the bad thing is, a lot of it ain't nowhere near as real life. I mean, you'd like to take the case we're doing today. I mean, yeah. good Lord. So by the third day of his capture, Bryson's capture, uh, he earned enough sufficient trust from Robert Berdella to persuade him to establish a daily regimen of tying his hands in front of him after his sexual abuse rather than keeping his hands above his head. Right. Like so, when he's tied onto a bed and have his head, hands above his head tied to the rails, he kept saying it was uh, it was painful and it was, you know, this was happening, the, the blood flow and stuff. So he, he asked him if he would tie him another way, and he did. Yeah, tied him in front of him instead of over his head. Right. And he also persuaded Berdella to leave a TV on, you know, in the room with the remote control placed between his legs when, uh, whenever Berdella was out of the room. Or gone, yeah. Yeah, so he could change the channel. Yeah. But he would later state to the investigators that he... He was constantly thinking about escaping. Yeah, trying to get out of there. He was pretty smart, even though when, uh, like a lot of times he said, while Berdella was raping him, he would just kind of fake pass out and hope he would quit, you know, and saying, you know, whatever, just fall out or whatever. He would drug him or whatever. He would overact or whatever was going on. And he would a lot of times fake a pass out and hoping he would quit and wait at least to come back later or something you know yeah so he was he was uh, all about surviving yeah he was trying to manage his escape somehow or another yeah especially he didn't come in there and told you he didn't kill a bunch of people you didn't try to get the hell out he now, you know once he he tied his hands and started putting his hands in front of him he realized when he'd done that he, he could loosen his restraints a little bit so one day when he left to go to work his hands yeah yeah he started wiggling his hands and sure enough it didn't take him long to get his hands loose and uh but the problem was he couldn't get his feet loose but anyway, earlier today, before he left, Berdella had brought him a, a drink and gave him a couple of cigarettes. He lit the cigarettes with a match and threw the matchbook down on the table, which is something he never did. So what he did is uh, once he got his hands free, he took that book of matches and started burning the ropes on his feet yeah. and got loose that way. He got loose from everything except for the dog collar and the leash that was around his neck, and he couldn't get that off. And he was completely naked, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. the whole time. But just keep in mind, too, all these victims, they stayed on this bed butt naked yeah yeah they were just stripped down they said the only time he ever let them up was either this guy anyway I don't, the other ones didn't say nothing <laughs> he said the only time he ever let him off the bed was to go in his words go number two because he said he told me he didn't want me shitting in his bed yeah so he would let him up go do that and i think take a shower once or something you know mm-hmm. but he, i think he had him that dog collar around his neck and had him restrained even in the shower but once he burned the ropes on around his feet, he managed to escape the house by jumping from a second floor window. Yeah, he's freaking out. He saw the window and he's like, oh, it's probably nailed shut or latched or, or he's coming back anytime. You know how many things would be going through your head. But well, he the, said, nail, the window's nailed shut or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what he thought it was going to be. So he went over there and reached it and sure enough, it just came right open. Yeah. Don't you know as a relief? And then oh, he looked gosh. out and then he realized he's on the second floor. Yeah. And no way down. Yeah, so he jumped. And I guess the, the adrenaline... He didn't realize when he hit the ground that he had broke his foot. Yeah. He just started running. Yeah. And he ran. There was a meter reader, actually. Across uh, the street. Yeah. Actually, I'd seen him, you know, jump out and run over toward him. What would you think, man? This guy's... I'd freak out. He's I probably saw... bleeding with a damn dog collar on him and naked and running crazy. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Beat all the crap. Yes. Yeah. But he saw the meter reader and told him to call the police. But the meter reader led Bryson 
to the house he had been approaching, whereupon the occupants promptly called the police, who arrived just a few minutes later. Yeah, the guy wasn't going to let him in the house, but he called the cops for you. I get it. I, mean, <laughs> yeah, I, wouldn't, too, be... I wouldn't let him in the house either. Wow. Now, Bryson was questioned at the scene by four officers, and he initially claimed that he had been hitchhiking when abducted by Robert Berdella, who had kidnapped, raped, and tortured him for days. Uh, he escaped by jumping from a window on the second floor of the property, like you know, like what had happened. And Robert Berdella had kept him bound to the bed on the second floor of the house throughout much of the time, and he had been held against his will. Repeatedly sodomized him, drugging him and injecting his throat with drain cleaner to soften his voice. Yeah, said his voice was all squeaky and it was crazy. And as Bryson spoke, the officers also noted that the additional dog collar and broken foot. And Bryson had red, swollen eyes and visible scars and welts across his entire body. And two officers were told to maintain a discreet surveillance of the property. And they took Bryson to the Menorah Medical Center, accompanied by a third officer for treatment, as the fourth officer radioed the Kansas City PD to request a formal search warrant for Berdella's property. Right. Yeah, when they got him, they asked him how long. I said, he's been several days. He goes, how many days? He goes, I don't know. What day is it? He said, they got me on a Tuesday. It was a Saturday. It was a Saturday before Easter. Wow. Now, during later questioning at the Kansas City PD, Bryson divulged that his captor had shown him these Polaroid images of men who appeared to be deceased. And he was also told that he would never leave the property and that if he became a nuisance or threat, he would be subjected to greater levels of torture uh, than what had already been endured. Or, or simply, just killed. Or yeah. just killed, yeah. yeah. Now, on the afternoon of Bryson's escape, Robert Berdella uh, showed him back up at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he got there, the police were there and asking him about his house and different things. Yeah. And uh, they asked him to search his house, but uh, he wasn't going to let him search the house. Yeah, he said no. So they went and got a search warrant, and they came back and they searched his house <laughs> mm-hmm. and they they found stuff man the house was just a a, a wreck yeah they were do- there was dog feces everywhere everywhere trash everywhere there was a turkey in the kitchen that had been left in a pot for days and it just stunk to high heaven and the cops they were describing it as just a horror house mm. just a mess and they were trying to walk around with all the dog feces and just the crap everywhere, Dale. Mm-hmm. And they got to the bedroom and they saw the all the torture devices. Yep. And it had been described perfectly like what uh, everything he said. Bryson had said, yeah. But Robert Berdella was arrested on charges pertaining to the sexual assault of Christopher Bryson. Now, searching the house and grounds at 4315 Charlotte Street, investigators, they uncovered a human skull inside a closet on the second floor property. This is the one he had dug up out in his yard and partially decomposed human head in the backyard and the search also uncovered several human vertebrae scarred by both hacksaw and knife marks Mm. that was stowed in the hallway and several human teeth that were stored in two envelopes yeah when he dug up that head out of the yard he pulled the teeth out and put the upper teeth in one envelope and the lower teeth in another envelope (laughs) and then put them on his gallery Mm. But both a hacksaw and miter saw were discovered in the basement of the property, and a chainsaw was also found to be soiled with blood stains, flesh, and pubic hair. Right. You know, and they went there, when they went in the second floor room, he basically, it was just like he had said, they found the restraints, the torture room, they found uh, where uh, the burnt ropes that was actually still attached to the foot of the bed, 
We also found a electrical transformer plugged into the wall with the, with the wires leading to the bed. A metal tray containing lots of syringes, small bottles, apparently they were containing all the prescription drugs, swabs, and even eye drops were all close to the bed. Mm -hmm. We also found in the room was the, a long iron pipe and various lengths of rope, a leather belt, and other stuff. Wow. It's like, I mean, all this stuff is just, just like he had told him there it was, and it's just laying there. Yeah. There were 334 Polaroid pictures and 34 snapshot prints of various men were also found in Berdella's house. And these pictures showed Christopher Bryson and several other men, both in life and in death. And many of the images had been taken as the subject of, had been tortured. Yeah, he took pictures of them torture them he took pictures of them having sex with them having them having sex with him he took pictures of them when they're alive when they're dead when he was cutting them up when he was hanging them up upside down when needles was, in them yeah i mean he took pictures of everything yeah and the search also uncovered numerous restraints and sexual devices pornographic literature hypodermic needles and a book on narcotics and also officers also discovered a stenographer's pad containing the detailed torture logs mm -hmm. that he had maintained for each victim above a chest of drawers yeah everyone yeah and several newspaper clippings from the kansas city star regarding a missing young man named jerry howell mm. this was the first victim right and both a wallet and driver's license belonging to a missing person named james ferris, ferris. was discovered in a closet on the second floor property mm. before the search of Berdella's property had concluded the kansas city pd assembled a special task force of 11 detectives and one sergeant to focus exclusively on the Berdella case. And this task force extensively researched uh, Robert Berdella's history, discovering that he was well-known among Kansas City male hustlers, having earned a reputation of preying on transient young men. And several of these male prostitutes were also reluctant to accept him as a client because of his um, known to be drugging them and injecting and torturing his sexual partners and acquaintances. Yeah. And also because he had, had long been considered a, sub a suspect in the disappearance of two men uh, whose personal possessions had been found in his house, who were Jerry Howell and James Ferris. Yeah. Missing person reports had also been filed in relation to these men, and Robert Berdella had been extensively questioned in relation to these disappearances. And in both instances... He had denied having anything to do with their disappearance. Yeah, he didn't do it. No, and despite being considered a prime suspect in both cases and being placed under surveillance, police had been unable to find any solid evidence linking him to either man's disappearance. And in both instances, after giving his initial statement to the police, Berdella had uh, refused to talk further without a lawyer present. Right. And he would later have his lawyer... Uh, threatened to file harassment accusations against police unless their questioning and surveillance of him would, would stop. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, James Ferris's wife identified him in several photos, these Polaroids found in the Berdella property, and some taken after her husband's death. Paul Howe, this is the guy who had the, the booth there at the right. flea market, he formally identified one picture of a young man hanging upside down in Berdella's basement as uh, his son. Can you imagine? I cannot imagine. And there were several other Polaroid images uh, depicted as yet unidentified young men, and several detectives were assigned to identify them, uh, determining if they were alive or dead. And if alive, the circumstance of the picture 
and in several of these images depicted a section of the body of the photographer they would show like Berdella's body yeah and Berdella was ordered to pose nude for ser- a series of photographs there at the uh, police station in order yeah. to yeah they were just basically uh, trying to recreate some of these Polaroid images to see if it indeed was him yeah yeah and checking his body to see if anything scarred yeah or... they would make him get into the certain angles to take it exactly as it was in the Polaroid to see if it was him yeah Ooh. crazy man yeah as numerous male names have been found scrawled upon various stenographers pads at Berdella's address the detectives began attempting to trace each of them and one of those traced a young man named Freddie Kellogg was able to state to detectives that he and several other young men had intentionally stayed at the Berdella home since the early 1980s and that Berdella had been in the habit of, you know, you know, giving his uh, renters, you know, giving them drugs. Right, and, well, that's why they all went there. They knew he'd go there and he would give them drugs and it was a party house and a place to stay. And get sex. Yes. And before engaging in sex with them, uh, regardless of whether they considered it or not. Right. Now, Kellogg also stated that Robert Berdella had expressed that a condition of his staying there with him, Kellogg was to persuade young men who Berdella found attractive to attend the parties at the house. Yes. So he could get them and drug them. Right. Now, initially, Robert Berdella was formally charged with one count of felonious restraint, one count of assault, and seven counts of forcible sodomy. Yes. As investigators continued their investigation into the discoveries of you know his house there. Well, basically they had to charge him with something because if they they could, they took him in right off the bat, but they can only hold him 24 hours unless they charge him with something. You know, exactly. like I said, it was the Saturday before Easter, so they their time is quickened. So they got to charge him with something that way they don't get him out. Yeah, and he was assigned a public defender mm-hmm. uh, as his legal representative and held in protective custody in the Jackson County Jail in lieu of five hundred thousand dollar bail. Yeah. Yeah. Which is be uh, one million two hundred fifty eight thousand two hundred dollars today. Wow. And in late April the skull found inside Berdella's closet was identified through ex- dental X rays uh, obtained through a subpoena from the University of Kansas Medical Center as that of Robert Sheldon. I guess they used the teeth in the the envelope. I guess they did. <laughs> and the same day a dental identification was made upon Sheldon's skull. Two men separately phoned the Kansas City Police Department to state one of seven identified, unidentified young men depicted in the photograph array released to the media on April 27th was a former high school acquaintance of theirs named Mark Wallace. Mm. And when a detective contacted Wallace's sister, she stated her brother had been missing since mid-1985. And shortly thereafter, investigators discovered that the photograph D released to the media in the same array was one Larry Wayne Pearson. Hmm. And Pearson had been a ward of the court in Wichita, and his dental records were discovered and compared to the skull found in Berdella's backyard. Right. It was the one that was still in the ground. Yeah. Now, Bert, Robert Berdella was formally charged with the murder and dismemberment of Larry Wayne Pearson in July after the, his head was discovered in his backyard mm-hmm. and was formally identified as Pearson on May the 12th. Now, prosecutors had gathered sufficient circumstantial evidence to accompany the physical evidence retrieved. Right. Now, on July 22nd of 1988, a grand jury formally indicted Robert Berdella for the murder of Larry Wayne Pearson. And the following month, he was arraigned and pleaded guilty in the Fourth Circuit of the Jackson County Court before Judge Alvin Randall. 
to the first-degree murder of Larry Pearson. Plea was entered following a late morning recess in the arraignment hearing into this particular murder and came to as a surprise to both judge and the prosecuting attorneys. Yes. The prosecution team assigned to the case accepted the plea with assistant prosecutor Pat Hall, later explaining the decision as being in the best interest of our client. Basically being in the best interest of the client and the people. Yes, exactly. Because cost a lot of money for this trial. Now, following the submission of the acceptance of the plea, the judge insisted that Robert Berdella confess under oath as to Pearson's death. Yeah, so basically he's coming in a plea, plea bargain, you know, because uh, they got this on him, and now he feel like he's got to have some uh, some power here. So he's like, well, we'll go in a plea bargain. Exactly. He's like, well, what are you going to tell us? Yeah. They had him for one murder pretty much down here for uh, Larry Wayne Pearson. And when he found out what was going on and what they're charging him, he just went ahead and, and was going to uh, plead guilty and basically said, if we'll, the plea bargain is, I'll plead guilty to the other five murders, and you just take the death penalty off the table. Exactly. So that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. So there's like, how, how many is all of them? That's when he's like, well, there's five altogether. Yeah. Yeah, in order to, to skip, like I said, in order to skip out on the death penalty, he pleaded guilty to, all, to uh, Pearson's murder and then all the other ones as well, you know. Yeah. So Verdella pled guilty to first-degree murder and the death of victim Robert Sheldon and to four counts of second-degree murder involving additional male victims. Uh, Verdella confesses that... Uh, and then is sent to the state penitentiary in Jefferson City, Missouri, for the rest of his life. Wow. Because he was uh, without, you know, parole, of course. Mm-hmm. So then he announced that he had set up a trust fund for $50,000 for, for the families of the victims. Yeah. Which I'm sure they was not really worried about that. Exactly. But, you know. So, he, later, you know, after he was in for a couple of years, he started, you know, kind of fading away a little bit. And, but he, he, he was kind of getting upset because he didn't like the, that they didn't understand what he did. They didn't understand what it was for. They, he didn't like them calling him the Kansas City Butcher. He didn't like being called the collector. So he gave a, an interview to a local television channel in which he came out and tried to basically twist everything and blame the police and the, the media for distorting him and his crimes. So that's kind of crazy, you know, and he went on there. And he also said that uh, prison officials were de- kind of denying him of his medication because he had uh, – some kind of heart issue, like his dad, I would assume, because, you know, remember, he died pretty early. Yeah. So he was saying that basically that they they weren't giving him the stuff like he's supposed to do and, and the way they treated him. And actually, so in, uh, in 1992, he did die of a heart attack. Yeah, he died in prison. Yeah, he yeah. was only in there just a couple of years. Yeah. He was, you know, of his sentence. He was only 43 years old. Wow. Right. But shortly after the judge at his trial, uh, Alvin Randall, the judge there was informed of Berdella's death, and in response to this, uh, Randall sarcastically remarked, "Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy." Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure he was. He was pretty hated there. I'm sure because this is some rough shit, man. It is. Now, this is probably one of the worst ones we've covered. It is. Now, some of the aftermath on this in November of 1988, auctions of Berdella's vast collection you know, of his artifacts and his you know stuff he had were confiscated from his home and business were were held on four separate dates with the intention of all the proceeds raised at the auction to be used to pay for his you know his large legal fees and within all the proceedings right and the auction attracted considerable national interest attracting telephone bids from across the united states and although many items sold for less than the expected price by the end of the first day auctioning alone more than sixty thousand dollars have been raised for the purpose, you know, yeah. paying for all this. It was, yeah. was today. I'd be one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Wow! 
and Berdella's home there on Charlotte Street, uh, it was purchased by a local businessman yep. for an undisclosed amount of money in ni- December of 1988. But the, yeah, then he only bought it for one reason. To tear it down. Tear it down. He demolished it, he yeah. Brought, brought in a backhoe and just took her out. Yeah. Pretty pretty sad stuff, man. Yeah. Pretty, it, pretty sick. Yes, very much so. Yeah, we've covered some bad stuff and you know this is a this this case has been covered a lot and but um it's not as popular as some of the other ones like you know Dahmer and gacy and um some of the big ones. ted bundy you know right but, but damn of this guy it's like we were talking today and i was like do you think this guy i mean him and Dahmer kind of overlap as far as the time period but god this they're a, a lot alike yeah you know, and then I don't know, except for the cannibalism part. But I don't know that this guy wouldn't have got there. I think he would have gotten there because he was all about being over and you know having total control. Yeah, I think he would eventually gotten there. But they basically had the same sex slave gimmick going on. Yeah, if you think about it. Yeah, and uh, Jerry Howe, Robert Sheldon, Mark Wallace, James Ferris, Todd Stoops. And Larry Wayne Pearson. Yeah. That was all his the people he killed. Yeah. And Christopher Bryson survived. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Jumping out that window. Man. Crazy Yeah, who story. knows how long, if he wouldn't have got out, how long this guy would have went on. I mean, because everybody, he, I mean, just think about it. The trash man was taking off the evidence. Yeah. And like you said today, man, put your shoes in, put your shoes. Like you said today, you know, put yourself in the shoes of the trash man. When, yeah. you, when you found out what you had been doing it happened at that house yeah you'd been picking that up carrying it off for days and stuff and yeah, yeah. you're picking up dead body you're parts up, you're yeah taking bodies to the landfill wow they said there wasn't no reason to search the landfill they'd be like looking for a needle in a haystack right to search for this stuff yeah well you know he cut them up small enough to, to put them wrap them up in a bag or in paper put them in a bag put that bag inside of an empty dog food bag and then put that bag in another bag yeah so it's probably lots of pieces and parts layers yeah yeah but um in 2009 there was a feature film called berdella is based directly on the murders committed by robert berdella it was written and directed by william taft hmm. and co-directed by paul south and the film stars seth korea as berdella i have to check that out yeah i have to look at that look that up but that is the uh story of robert andrew berdella Whew. Yeah, he's a sick individual, man. Yeah, very much so. But uh, we appreciate everybody tuning into this one. This was rough for us to study and learn about. It's kind of long, but uh, it had to be done, and we wanted to do it for you guys. Our pain. Yeah. (laughs) All right, Dale. All right, let's get out of here. We're going to get out of here, bud. Let's roll. We want everyone to be safe. Please be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is the Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.